This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Today we're going to talk about the mighty deliverance of the Israelites through the power of God, not through Moses, but through the power of God. We're going to look at the plagues, we're going to look at the crossing, we're going to look at this deliverance, and we're going to see it as a judgment upon the Egyptians, but also a demonstration of the salvific, okay, that's a very big word, of the saving power of God for his people. I want you to imagine that you are an Israelite. I know you're a spiritual Israelites here today. But I want you to imagine that you're an Israelite that has been in bondage in Egypt for years and years and years, for generations. You don't remember anything else except slavery. You don't remember anything else except living under taskmasters and living under oppression. You don't remember anything else but, but that, that horrible situation of slavery that has consumed everything, your life. And by the way, we have studied forensically some of the builders of the pyramids who weren't probably slaves but were paid, but you know, they had hard lives building those pyramids. We have a workman's village, dear El Medina, where, the, where these workmen lived. And these were not the Israelites. These were much earlier. But we have, we have this workman's village and we know that these people had shorter lives because of the hard labor that they were under. Their average lifespan was 25 to 30 years. They, they, we have done forensic studies, that is, studies on the skeletal remains of the buried builders of the pyramids, and we've discovered that, that as we look at their bones and when we look at their structure, the, the wear and tear on their bodies is evident, is clearly evident. And tomorrow I'm going to be talking about, about Egyptian uh, medicine and health a little bit, and and some of the health laws a little bit more in detail. But this is interesting. So we can imagine through that what the Israelites must have been going through. Okay? So for Moses to come back as an 80-year-old man is quite remarkable. For Moses to come back after 40 years in the wilderness, he left when he was 40 years of age, to come back as an 80-year-old man is, is incredible. And God is with him. But as he comes back, something intriguing happens. You remember earlier we talked about where this might have fit in history. We talked about the rise of Hatshepsut as the first female pharaoh of Egypt, that she takes on the titularies of Egypt because her co-regent, Thutmose III, who's only two or three years of age, is not old enough to reign over the kingdom. And we talked about how this co-regency was was probably an awkward situation, and perhaps Moses was in this mix as well as the chosen, according to the spirit of prophecy, the chosen regent of Egypt by his adoptive grandfather and by his adoptive mother. And so maybe the reason Hatshepsut was holding out all those years as Thutmose III and, and her had this, had this awkward co-regency, maybe the reason why she didn't allow him to become king, this is Thutmose III, was because she was waiting and hoping that Moses, in those 40 years growing up in the palace, or at least uh, almost 30 years, would change his mind, would maybe be persuaded to become a god and thereby king of Egypt. But we read yesterday that Moses chose rather to suffer the affliction of his people than to Enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. You know, we are all faced with that choice, right? We can enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season in this world, but what is the brief moment of this world compared to all eternity? So, what is our choice today? Now, what is fascinating is that Hatshepsut eventually dies. And she dies while Moses is in the wilderness, at least if we follow the timeline of biblical thinking. She dies while Moses is in the wilderness, and when Moses comes back, he's either facing Thutmose III, his rival that he has grown up with, 
or he is facing his son, Amenhotep II. Scholars are divided about this because it depends on your exact timing of the event and where you date the Exodus. Is it 1450? Is it 1446? Is it 1447? Exactly when is it? But and, and Egyptian chronology is not all that set in stone either. You have a high and a middle and a low chronology. So we're, we're doing some, some, some educated guessing here, okay? Some hypothesizing. Because we don't have the name of the pharaoh. We don't have the name of the princess. Moses doesn't give us those. But we're doing some hypothesizing. But what is fascinating is that after Hatshepsut's death, she is systematically erased chiseled out of the walls of her temples and out of the walls of any memory in Egypt. And you have to understand something about Egyptian mythology. The reason why the kings are shown together with the gods, here with Hathor, you see her horns and her, and her symbol of the sun, but Hatshepsut has been chiseled away here. Here with Thoth, the god of wisdom in writing and literature, the same Thoth that Tut, Moses, Tut and Thoth is the same thing, is named after. And on the other side, Horus, what are they doing? They're pouring out of vials the Ankh symbol around the person in their center. What is the Ankh symbol? You remember that, the symbol of eternal life, the eternal breath, the eternity that, that the monarch is promised after death. And to erase someone from that means that that person will not experience eternal life after death. In fact, that person is not only erased from history, they are erased from the future destiny of the Egyptian ideology of the spirit force going on for eternity. Why is that so important? The pictorial image, I was talking to my wife yesterday with somebody else about this and was reminded about it because she's the art historian, I just dig in the dirt. But she studies all this artwork and she took classes at Emory University and Egyptology and, and, and her professor was the world's expert on Hatshepsut, Gay Robbins. And, and the reason that this is so important is to have the image represented on the temple walls was the same as having you live on for eternity. The representation was as real as you are real. So to erase this was not only a symbolic gesture in the Egyptian mind, it was a real gesture that erased the person forever. Now, who did such a thing? It wasn't Hatshepsut. It was after her death. Who would have erased her image? I mean, you can see the chisel marks here, and we can see the outline of a person. And the only reason we know it's her, because not all of her name has been erased up above, because some of those hieroglyphic symbols are symbols of deities, and, and, and they cannot erase deities, because that would erase deities. Can't do that. Can't erase the gods from history. Okay, so, so they're still there, and this was a big mystery. Do you know that subsequent to this time, that, that because of this erasure, because of this, um, this, this complete erasure of Hatshepsut, what happened was that the subsequent king lists that later individuals of Egypt's uh, history, the scribes, the king lists that they put together, the Turin king lists and other ones that were put together that we base our chronologies on, Hatshepsut is completely missing from those king lists. Hatshepsut was completely unknown until the Egyptian language was, was deciphered because we have records from other Greek historians about these kings. Manetho mentions these lists and so forth. Hatshepsut was missing and, and it wasn't until Champollion, the French uh, scholar who deciphered the Egyptian language found this strange name with this female determinative at the end and like, who is this person? She appears to be a pharaoh or a king, but we don't have any record of her. Who is Hatshepsut? And the enigma of Hatshepsut continues to fascinate people ever since. You can look her up on the internet and see the, the ink that has been spilled on her. Most scholars believe that it was the III that erased Hatshepsut's image. And the big question is why? Scholars say they give different answers for that. Well, he was so frustrated as being, as being repressed by his dominant uh, stepmother slash uh, aunt slash half-sister, all this, you know, all the rela strange relationship, that, that she was, he, was, he was so upset 
with that, that when he finally, when she finally died, and we have no idea how she died, we think perhaps now probably bone cancer. I'll get into that tomorrow afternoon. But when she died, that, that he did this in order to erase her memory from history, that there was some kind of a revenge motive here. But there is a problem with that idea, which is the dominant idea out there. Tutmosis III does this erasure, not immediately after her death, but 20 years after Hatshepsut's death. Why would he have to wait? Why would he want to wait 20 years later to erase Hatshepsut's image why wouldn't he want to do that right away? What would be the reason 20 years later to do that? Just before his own death, by the way, scholars, uh, Peter Dorman believes maybe a year to two years before his own death, maybe even less. I mean, we cannot be that specific with time. We're dealing with ancient history and we don't have all of those details. But he does it towards the end of, of his reign. Why? And this is the reason that is given by Professor Peter Dorman of the Oriental Institute of the University of Chicago, the most prestigious institute specializing in the ancient Near East and Egyptology in the United States today. Professor Dorman wrote his dissertation on this, and in a book published on Hatshepsut uh, by the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which excavated her temple at Deir al-Bari, he writes this, after 50 years on the throne, Tutmosa, that's Tutmosa III, can have had little to fear by way of challenges to his own legitimacy or comparison with his former co-regent, that's Hatshepsut. The need for the proscription, that is the erasing of her image, seems to have arisen toward the end of his reign and to have vanished shortly after Amenhotep II, that's his son, became co-ruler. They also formed an interesting co-regency at the end of their reign. Why? That's another question. Two years, he estimates, two years before Tutmosis III's death. The timing and short duration of the attack on Hatshepsut's image and name suggest it was driven by concerns relating to the royal succession. What was the crisis that the, this dynasty was facing? Royal succession crisis. Uh, for three generations that had festered, now Tutmosis III is somehow feeling threatened in some way, and it ceased once Amenhotep II was securely enthroned. Then he speculates, it has been suggested that toward the end of Tutmosis III's life, there were two contenders for the throne. One, the Skion, or the, the, the prince, the... the, 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 uh, the uh, progenitor of the Tutmoside dynastic line of the king himself. That's not Hatshepsut's line. That's, that's Tutmosa III's line. And another representing the Ahmoside bloodline. That is the founder of the 18th dynasty, Ahmosa. The Ahmoside bloodline to which Hatshepsut was part, to which Hatshepsut directly belonged through her mother. The proscription of Hatshepsut would then have been initiated in order to discredit the legitimacy of a rival now, I am not saying this. This is being stated by one of the world's most well-known and the expert on Hatshepsut's life, Professor Peter Dorman from the University of Chicago. And then, but this is what he says. I didn't quote him as he goes further. He says, but because we do not know of such a rival, maybe this is not a good hypothesis. <laughs> do we not know of such a rival? Let's go back to the Bible. Professor Dorman's not a biblical scholar. He's not a believer. He's a secular uh, Egyptologist. But let's go to the Bible. What was happening? Could it be that when Moses came back from his exile of 40 years, that this is precisely what happened? That, that you have now, <laughs> he feels a little threatened. I mean, 40 years ago, Moses disappeared. We suggested that perhaps the 17 campaigns by Tutmosis III into Canaan were to find Moses and, and really get rid of him after killing the Egyptian. We don't know for certain. But, but now, now Moses is back and suddenly there is this power struggle, at least in the mind, of the king of Egypt, who is now solely king of Egypt, although he somehow appoints his son as co-regent just in case. Why would he do that? Very interesting question. I would like to suggest that this fits very well with the biblical account of what happened. And the Pharaoh that would have died during Moses' exile 
while he was away would have been Hatshepsut, not Tutmos III. I'm not the only person to suggest this. If you want more details on this hypothesis, on the website, gyc.org, you can find with this seminar a number of, of uh, articles that I have written. And uh, there's one there by Professor William Shea, written in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, that also argues in this way. Okay, so you can read that there. So the question at this point was, the Ahmosite bloodline of Hatshepsut or the Tutmosite bloodline of Tutmose III? And Moses could have been seen as a, even though he was adopted, the gift of the Nile, he could have seen, been seen as Hatshepsut's choice to follow her bloodline. So Moses versus Tutmose III. Now we don't see that in the Bible because the purpose of Moses going back was not to take over Egypt, right? God didn't send Moses back to take over Egypt. God didn't send Moses back to become Pharaoh. He took Moses out of the situation of Egypt so that he could retrain him in the wilderness to do what he had called him to do originally. So let's look at some things here. And I'd like to show you now as we go into this experience as Moses heads back to Egypt and he meets his brother Aaron and he meets with the elders there in Egypt, the Israelite elders, and they begin to, to pray and to, I mean, it must have been an amazing experience for those people to have Moses come back. What was happening there? Exodus chapter 7, verses 4 through 5. This is a beginning of the narrative dealing with the plagues. I want you to hear this. These are the reasons for the plagues. Now, some people look at these plagues and say, what kind of God would do that? But let's look at these plagues and let's understand them in their context. Let's understand them within the context of what Egypt had been doing to Israel for how many years? Hundreds of years. And let's look at what this means in relationship to Egyptian religion and the power struggle. This was not a power struggle between Moses and whoever was Pharaoh of Egypt, whether it was Tutmose III or Amenhotep II. This was not a power struggle between those two kings. Friends, we are not engaged in a power struggle between individuals and people. Sometimes we make things personal, don't we? But it's not personal. Satan uses people. And God uses people. Who are we going to be used by? And the fact of the matter is that there is a great controversy going on and there is a bigger issue going on here in the great realm of things between the forces of good and the forces of evil and to be even more specific, between the forces of the God of heaven, the true monotheistic God of heaven and the gods of ancient Egypt. Let's look at this, Exodus 7, 4 through 5. That I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, that is my armies, that is my, the people, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by my great what? Judgments. So these were not simply, oh, let's, uh, let's make life miserable for the Egyptians. No. These are now divine judgments, not from Moses and not from the Israelites, but from God, the God of heaven, the true God of the universe, on an idolatrous nation that had oppressed and wrought havoc to people. And by the way, Israel was not a great nation. It was great, perhaps, in numbers, but what does God say in Exodus? I have chosen them because they are least among the people. They were slaves. They were not among the most amazing people. And God chose them out of their... He heard their prayers. He heard what they were crying out, and he rescued them. All right. So that they know, may know... And let's go, continue. And the Egyptians shall know what? That I am the Lord that I am the Lord. And by the way, whenever you see Lord in full caps in the Bible, we're talking about God's covenant name, his personal covenant name. This is not El, the general name for God, 
or Elohim, the majestic plural name of God. This is Yahweh, the name of, well, we don't even know how that name is really pronounced because the Jews didn't pronounce it for so many years, and we don't have vocalizations in the early manuscripts of the Bible, but Yahweh was the name that he was going by. And when he reveals himself to Moses, guess what the I am is? Tell them I am the I am. He reveals his name as Yahweh. Okay? So here it is. That they may know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. I want to go through the ten plagues with you. And I want to look at those ten plagues in relationship. There's a number of ways the plagues have been interpreted by scholars over the years. How many of you watch the History Channel or the Discovery Channel or different channels like that and different documentaries? Plagues have have had a lot of different interpretations. There are many people out there that try to explain the plagues as natural phenomena. That is, that there was a great tide that came along and that this was what caused the sea to go apart or that there there was a... Uh, algae that began to grow in the Nile and it gave the color of red and this was interpreted by, as blood. Or that, you know, there, there's, there's all of these natural explanations. Let me tell you something. If you're going to stick with the Bible, you need to read what the Bible says. There is no room for algae when the Bible repeatedly refers to blood again and again and again. It's clear in the text, okay? And by the way, we try often in our lives especially if we're secular, to explain divine things naturally. That's the whole theory of evolution. To to explain divine creation as a natural process that took place over billions of years that happened through chance and random selection and all of the other things, the the, uh, power of a species to dominate and, and rule over another, or to have uh, power over another, all of these things. We try to explain things naturally because in our modern and postmodern world, we have given up on the idea of a God. The world has anyway. So we have to explain them, or we dismiss it altogether and say it was just a story. But if you try to give some credence to it, then you explain it naturally. Well, don't get me wrong. God can use natural events. We don't know how the walls of Jericho fell in the conquest, right? He could have used an earthquake for that, but he also could have sent a whole myriad of angels to shake up those walls, right? He could have uh, used something natural, but in this case, it doesn't say that he used something natural. He didn't use something natural at the creation week to create something out of nothing. When he spoke things into existence, that was not something, well, Behind it, there were probably some physics involved. He probably thought all of it out and it happened. But there's a power in God's word that goes beyond what we can sometimes explain naturally. I was at a conference some years ago dealing with faith and science. And I was sitting uh, in a panel discussion with a number of physicists. And physics was one of my favorite subjects. And and I love physics, although I'm not a physicist. I took many classes in college and also in high school. And... uh, These guys were trying to say that if they had been there when Jesus walked on the water at Galilee, that they could have explained it physically. And I was like, wow, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And these were, by the way, these were Christian scholars. In fact, dare I say, they were Adventist scholars. And I sat there and I was like, am I hearing this right? So I listened respectfully for a while. And then I said to them, I said, wait a minute. I said, by the way, this was a group of church leaders and scientists and theologians that were gathered there, I said, I said, you know, I love physics and physics is great and we can explain so many natural laws out there and, 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 and it's, it's wonderful to know the law of thermodynamics and, and all of these things. Physics was my favorite subject and they're nodding and smiling, you know, this is cool, this guy likes what we do, you know. And I said, but how do you explain God speaking something into existence? The power of the spoken word. You see, there are some things that we can't explain because we are not God. And we don't know everything. If we knew everything, we would be God. 
Isn't that what the serpent promised to Eve? If you eat of the tree, you will know and you will have power. No, we need to have God be God and we need to be who we are. So here we are. Sorry, that was a little aside on the Nile. What was the Nile? Do you remember what the Nile was? It was the gift of Egypt. The Egypt was the gift of the Nile. Without the Nile, there would be no what? Egypt. Still today, I mean, yes, there are people who live in the desert, but without the Nile, there would be no vegetation, there would be no crops, there would be no life in Egypt. Everything revolves around the Nile. And as we mentioned yesterday, uh, Hapi, the Nile, the god of the Nile, was, was worshipped. The Nile itself was worshipped as a god. Here, here is a depiction of the Nile god. And notice these men <clears throat> have put on a little weight. This is a symbol of wealth and prosperity, okay? When you are a little, you know, have a little uh, meat on you, this is a sign of wealth and prosperity. You know, don't, don't listen to our culture today. Now, I'm suggesting we all be healthy, but don't get me wrong. But sometimes our culture wants us to go the opposite direction, and we have skinny little rails walking around, and we say, oh, that's beautiful. Well, bulimia is not beautiful, and some of the other things we suffer from. So here we have, here we have a, a wonderful, wonderful... Why are there two, by the way? Because there is an upper and a lower Egypt. There are two parts to Egypt. There's upper and lower Egypt, and they are binding together. This is the Nile River coming from the mountains, the Nile River flowing, and they are binding the Nile River. They're binding upper and lower Egypt, which is represented here by the lotus flower and the papyrus plant, they're binding together upper and lower Egypt because what does the Nile do? It binds together the country through the traffic that can go back and forth, just like the Mississippi and, and other rivers. I don't know. What is the river out here? Thank you, the Ohio River. I live by the Tennessee River. Okay, These rivers bind America together through the shipping. At least they used to a lot more. Today we have other means of transportation. So when God turns the Nile into blood, what is he doing? He is turning the lifeline of the country from the life of water into the life of blood. Have you ever read in the Bible? The blood is the life. One of the reasons that still today Jews keep kosher, and I've seen this many times when I go to the Middle East. They drain the carcass of all of its blood. They slit the throat. I'm a vegetarian, so I don't like to see this very often, but they, they slit the throat of the, of the goat or the sheep or the calf, and they do that while the animal is upside down and still alive, and they wait until the, the heart pumps, because the heart is still pumping, all of the blood out of that animal. And it drains out through the neck, out. And then it is safe to eat because in the Bible, it's not just the clean and unclean laws that we have in the Bible. It also tells us specifically not to eat an animal with its blood. We kind of have lost that, I think, a little bit in our health uh, message as we've talked about it over the years. Why? Because the life is in the blood. So now the life of the Egypt is turned into blood. Is that a little ironic? But you don't go around drinking blood, do you? I mean, they would drink the Nile River water, but you wouldn't go around drinking blood. And suddenly, in a desert country, they have something that God gives life through, but they cannot have life through. Does that make sense? It's an irony. It is a direct message to the Egyptians that I am the God of the universe, and I control life. And I give life. By the way, have we figured out yet how to make blood? I'm not a medical person, but I, I see the blood van coming to our campus on a regular basis. And they are asking students and others to donate blood. Why do we do that? Because we can't make it. God makes it. Okay? He is the life giver. And blood is part of what? 
makes it happen. All right, number two, we can go on and on about some of this stuff. Frogs, and I know what you're wondering. Frogs, come on. What I'm suggesting here as we go through this is this is a deliberate decreation of the idea that the Egyptians had of their idea of creation, that is that all of creation was deified, and God doesn't attack all of the thousands of gods that, that are there, but he, he attacks the ideology by, by minimizing one by one the, the central ideas and thoughts of the Egyptian pantheon of gods, whatever you want to call them, their cosmogony, uh, their, their theogony, because it really wasn't a cosmogony, it was a theogony, it was a creation of the gods that then represented nature. That's how they conceived the world. And so God is attacking not only the Nile physically, he's attacking the ideology behind what they believed about the Nile. And he does that subsequently in other plagues as well. The frogs, now I know what you're thinking right now. What is the big deal about frogs? I mean, they're kind of, you know, when you're in a nice cabin out in the woods and you hear them croaking at night, they're kind of cute, right? Well, the Egyptians worshipped them. You ever thought about that? Here's a frog. I actually looked this one up. This is a Nile frog. This is one that probably is very typical of that part of the world. Heket, here he is. She is, I'm sorry. Heket, what, what kind of face does she have? The face of a frog. Now, is that kind of strange? Oh, by the way, there's a crocodile god, face of a crocodile. We'll see different gods here in a moment. Oh, that god, what, what, what's his face? Ram. By the way, so Heket is the fertility goddess, and what is she handing to Chnum? Chnum, she's handing an ankh to Chnum because she is the goddess of fertility, and this is a potter's wheel, and they are making on the potter's wheel people. She is the goddess of, of birth and fertility. Okay? And imagine what God is doing when he creates millions of frogs to start hopping all over Egypt. And the Bible tells us they were, not, they were hopping everywhere. They were hopping inside the palace of the king and inside his bedroom and, and, and all over the place. They were everywhere. Okay? Fertility. Yeah, fertility. <laughs> everywhere. Okay? What is God doing? He's saying, I control fertility. Frogs, I created frogs, and I can make them multiply. Now, the Egyptians tried to, you know, do their thing and tried to, to use magic to do their thing and to copy some of these plagues, but there were some that they could not copy. Here we have Exodus 8, 16 through 19, the earth to lice. I could read all of these. I invite you. It's just two chapters, Exodus 7 and 8. You can read that later on. The earth to lice. What is this? This is a direct attack against the cosmology that we talked to before. This is Geb. Shu, okay, is the original god and creates Newt. Newt was the sky goddess. You remember the sky goddess that swallows the sun and then gives birth to the sun in this cyclical... Uh, pattern of life. And Geb is pictured down here. He is the earth god. The earth god. Shu creates Newt and Geb. And, uh, and Tefnut, who is pictured here in the middle, is the atmosphere or moisture and holds up one and separates the two. So here we have Newt and Geb. Okay, Geb is the earth god. So suddenly the earth brings forth what? What did we just say? Lice. Have you ever had lice? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you whether you have it now because there will be a mass exodus around you. <laughs> so anyway, let's just leave it at that. Um, it's not a pleasant thing. Does it, do they itch? Yes. Have, you have pets that have lice? They wear collars and to keep them away, right? We don't have pets at home that have lice. We don't have pets, so we don't have lice. So anyway, um, yeah, so lice are everywhere. But they, where do they come? They come from the dust of the ground. So what is God doing? He's saying, I control the earth, and I'm going to use the earth to judge you. You, you are not in control 
of these things. Exodus chapter 8, verses 20 through 24, swarms. That's, it, it's translated in different ways. Some think these were mosquitoes. Some think these were, these were biting. Uh, uh, and they were because uh, Ellen White says they were biting. They had horrible, horrible um, stings to them. And there's been different, different uh, interpretations on which, but this basically was a judgment on the, on the creepy, crawly things that were out there. And uh, many different scholars have suggested different things. Perhaps Hepper, the dung beetle, uh, one of the creepy crawlies that was worshipped because it created the sun. How does a beetle create the sun? Have you ever wondered that? Well, let's look at it here. There is a real one. You know what the beetle does? It inserts its eggs into dung. And then with its hind legs, you can see it here, it forms that dung into a perfect sphere. And once that dung has been created into a perfect sphere, the decomposition of that dung and the heat that it creates allows fertilization to the, not fertilization is not the right word, but allows the eggs to be cocooned in a nice warm environment. And when the eggs of the dung beetle hatch, they come out of the dung. And so the Egyptians saw this and they were like, wow, look at how powerful the dung beetle is. It creates the sun and the sun creates, because the sun is a sphere, and the sun creates life. Oh, we look at that and we're like, huh? But when you think about it, if you're worshiping nature, you begin to look for these things in nature, don't you? And that's what the Egyptians were doing. So perhaps God is directly, directly speaking about these little creepy crawly things that uh, are out there. What about the livestock? Now this is interesting. I have a little star here because this is one of the plagues. And we don't have this mentioned for all of the plagues. I don't know uh, how the plagues you know, affected all of Egypt. I mean, it, it, the Bible is very clear that it affected all of Egypt. But the, the question is, um, the Israelites, okay? This plague specifically says that the Israelites' livestock were not affected by this plague. Now, you explain a natural disaster that is caused naturally that only pinpoints the Egyptian livestock and not the Israelite ones. That's the problem with some of these naturalistic explanations. It wasn't a, supernatural, it wasn't a natural thing. It was a supernatural thing. It was God's judgment on the Egyptians and the Israelite livestock, those that put their livestock inside and were told about it ahead of time, they were... Now, livestock, we're talking here about cattle, we're talking here about cows and bulls and, and, and animals, sheep perhaps as well. We can talk about many deities because remember, the Egyptians worshipped pretty much everything, but they had specific deities that they really lavished themselves on, and there was the Apis bull ceremony where one bull was selected and became the bull of that particular period of time, and later that bull, who was deified or was seen as a deity, was actually mummified and placed in as expensive a coffin or sarcophagus. Here is the bull sarcophagus at, the, um, at Saqqara. Um, and you can see there's a hole, the Serapium at Saqqara is a whole burial, uh, how shall I say, a whole burial field underneath the ground of one of these Apis bull burials after another. Burials of Apis bulls that were mummified and placed in these enormous granite coffins. And by the way, the granite coffins came from where? All the way down in Aswan the southern part of Egypt. They had to be transported. These weighed tons. They had to be transported like the obelisks all the way up to uh, the area of Saqqara near, near Cairo, way in the north, near the, in the delta. We can also refer to the cow goddess Hathor. Remember, we had talked about her in relationship to Hatshepsut in the Hathor temple that was there. Um, and here you have Hathor and another king, um, often Hathor is propelling the king forward. He, she is the divine mother of the king. So by attacking those animals, there is a judgment against these gods of Egypt. What about the boils? 
the boils. Um, this attacked ancient medicine and medical ideas in Egypt. And the goddess that is often associated with the polemic of this particular plague, and uh, that would have been a very painful plague. I've never had a boil, but I can only imagine. I uh, have read the book of Job and can only imagine what he went through. Uh, the boils, many people think that this may be referencing the goddess of healing uh, associated with the healing arts, uh, the cat goddess, Sechmet. Here's a statue of her in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. We were just there a few weeks ago with a group from Southern Adventist University. My wife leads an art appreciation tour every year, and there's a whole row of them there at the Metropolitan Museum. Here she is uh, standing before Pharaoh, who's wearing the crown of Upper Egypt and is holding offerings to Sechmet. Okay, so she was also worshipped. And so this is an attack on the healing arts, which were also very magical. Uh, and, and some of it was, was, I mean, they had surgeons. They had, they had physicians back then. We have medical papyri. We'll talk a little bit about that tomorrow. The last one was hail. Where does hail come from? The sky, the heavens. And here we are again dealing with the idea of the elements. Are these elements gods? As the Egyptians believed? By the way, I have an asterisk there too. Why? Because the hail was selective. I don't understand how this can be a natural thing. I mean, I know I lived in Tucson, Arizona, which is, has a 360 days of sunshine a year in the Sonoran Desert. And sometimes we would get thunderstorms and there would be a little lone cloud that would go around with lightning and, and with, with, you know, pouring water. And you'd be in full sunshine and you'd watch this cloud kind of go around. You know, it's kind of, kind of strange. We don't have that kind of phenomenon up here yeah, where we live here in, near Indiana and Michigan. It's cloudy all the time. But, uh, but in there, you know, it was kind of nice, sunshine all the time, and you just stayed away from that cloud, you know. If you, you, you were somewhere else, you were okay. And if you weren't, you just put your windshield wipers on and you could get away from it. We can't do that in this part of the world. So hail, though, hail is very, you know, I mean, when it hails, it hails. We had a tornado come through Chattanooga some years ago, and we had hail the size of baseballs. Yeah, my windshield was wrecked. My car was outside, and uh, the insurance luckily paid for that. So what was this? What was this? Here we have again this cosmology. This is an attack against Newt, the sky goddess, because where does hail come from? The sky. So the god of heaven controls the heavens. The god of heaven controls Shu, and Newt, and controls Tefnut, the, god, the goddess of moisture as well, because what makes up hail? Water, right? Frozen water. Moisture. So anyway, I'm not making this stuff up. There's a number of scholars that have looked at this over the years and have said this is a polemic against the gods of Egypt. This is a decreation. What about the locusts? Oh, my. I, we're going through this so quickly. Can you imagine being an Egyptian living through this? One thing after another. This is not only a polemic against the gods. This is a systematic destruction and judgment on Egypt. And the Bible keeps saying over and over again, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Only a couple times does it say God hardens his heart. Most of the time it's Pharaoh that's hardening his heart. It's amazing. Pharaoh keeps hardening his heart. And then he says, oh, you can go. And then he says, no. And then, you know, this is back and forth and back and forth. This is the power. This is the power of choice and sometimes the power that sin has over our feelings, and over the best judgment. Pharaoh was clinging on to power no matter what. And God was slowly working not only on Pharaoh, but on the rest of the Egyptians to show them that they were not gods, but that he was God. 
the locusts. Well, the locusts, we can look at the god Seth, the god of destruction, perhaps, because what do locusts do? They come in and they eat everything. Just recently, there was a locust swarm that came from Egypt to Israel. Now, I'm not suggesting that was another judgment by God, but I found this on the internet. I found it interesting. Look at this poor guy down in, down in the southern part of, of, of the Negev on the border to the Sinai, or to Egypt, and look at these locusts. These are not little, little, little bugs. In fact, some years ago in the 1990s, I was excavating at Ekron, and I picked up you know, we work in, we, we're, working, we're walking across agricultural fields when we go to the site, and I, and I picked up a locust. I'd never seen a locust before. I mean, I've seen grasshoppers. Grasshoppers are cute little animals, aren't they? They're not locusts. Okay, I picked up a locust. The body of the locust was that big. The wings of the locust were about that big. I held it in the palm of my hand. It filled up my whole hand. These are, these are creatures. These are helicopters of destruction, <laughs> and they come in swarms. I mean, look at this poor guy. Look at the size of these. Look at the size of these. Here's somebody holding one, okay? Look at this. This is his finger. This is not a little grasshopper. These are huge. And they came, and they desecrated. Yeah, we could talk about destruction. We could even look at plant gods, and we could look at other things. They destroy plant life. They destroy the food of Egypt. It's gone. They come in. They do their work, they eat, they have appetites, there's millions of them, and they're gone, and Egypt is left with nothing. And then we have Exodus 10, 21 through 28, darkness. We're moving towards the end, right? This is the last, almost the last plague, Exodus, 9, uh, Exodus 10, the ninth one. What would you think that plague would be against? The sun, absolutely. Can you imagine? The sun doesn't rise in the morning like it has done every single day of Egypt's existence. There's darkness in the land. Wow. That is the ultimate because sun worship, sun worship, I mean, what do you do? I mean, there is darkness in the land. There is no sun. There's no sun, and it doesn't only happen for one day. It goes on, and it goes on, and what has happened to the cycle of life that the Egyptians thought were the cycle of life? God says, no, I created the greater light, as we said yesterday. It is not a God. I created it, and I control it. Now, of course, we know he wasn't controlling necessarily the sun here. The sun probably, I don't know what happened here. If he covered it with, how did he cover the sun from shining? Well, he could have done it with some very, 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 very dark clouds. He could have covered it with a myriad of angels and kept it from shining. We don't know how he did it. The sun was, I mean, the earth was still rotating on its axis and all of those things were happening. But at any rate, there was darkness in the land. The, the, the whole ideology of Egypt that was based on the rising and the setting of the sun was challenged. The sun god, Ray, here, Horus, this is the, actually the Egyptian king, depicted as Horus holding the Ankh as a sun god because he was the sun god as he was deceased. Here we have an interesting image. This woman is lifting up her hands to worship the sun and look at the rays of the sun coming down upon her. We talked about sun worship before in a previous presentation. This was, this was not only an Egyptian religion, this was a religion that went throughout history and throughout the different civilizations. But Egypt and its pharaoh still would not let Israel go. So finally we come to a very devastating plague. Now I want to share something with you. Could each of these plagues have been avoided? Absolutely. Did Moses go to Pharaoh in each situation and announce what was going to happen? Yes. Did Moses warn him of what was going to happen? Yes. And, but yet Pharaoh hardened his heart. At each junction, after each plague, Pharaoh could have said, okay, your God is supreme. You can go. 
Okay. I mean, he could have done that after. He could have done that before any plagues came. He could have done that when Aaron cast down his rod and it became a serpent, demonstrating the power of God. Right? He didn't even have to start the plagues in the beginning to start anything. God doesn't want to send plagues. But sometimes when there is such evil in the world, God makes a decision that enough is enough. And it is time to eradicate evil in his mercy for people who are oppressed, people who are dying, people who have lived for hundreds of years. This was not just for the Israelites. This was for the nations around that he was God. I have to stop here in a moment. Do you remember what the, what the remedy was for the angel of death as it came down over the land of Egypt? Passover. What happened? What happened? You put blood of a lamb on the lintel of the doorway. And if that blood of the lamb was there, guess what would happen? The firstborn wouldn't die. By the way, the firstborn was not only the firstborn of humans. It was the firstborn of every single animal as well. This was a direct, this was the final, final straw, if you will, the final demonstration because God is a God who gives life and is able to take life away. This is not something that we control. And it is through His mercy. Here we see judgment with mercy combined. Because in each of these situations, there is a choice. In each of these situations, there is a choice. I believe there were Egyptians that also did this on there. We know that there were Egyptians, a mixed multitude that went out with, with Israel, right? And so God gave a choice and he said, you know, you do this. Now, this is interesting. This is a lintel. We saw this before. This is a lintel of serpents from Saqqara. The question of the choice here is, are you going to follow the religion of the serpent still after all of this, or are you going to place the blood of the lamb on the lintel of the door? And of course, that blood of the lamb represented the future blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ, who was going to die on the cross of Calvary. The final payment of death and dying and sin so that we can have life. What a terrible tragedy that was. What a terrible tragedy that was. But the Israelites were able to go free. They were able to go free. Let me share with you something. the III was succeeded by Amenhotep II. But Amenhotep II, we know for a fact from history, was not his firstborn son. Amenhotep II was succeeded by Tutmosis IV. And we know for a fact that Tutmosis IV was not his firstborn son. We don't have records of what happened to the firstborn sons, but we know that those successors for both of those kings were not the firstborn sons, so that both of them could, in effect, possibly qualify for the Pharaoh of the Exodus. We don't know for certain, again, we're just hypothesizing. Some years ago, I visited the lost tomb, a lost tomb. This made the cover of Time magazine in 1995, the tomb of Ramses II's sons. Here are some of them depicted. Uh, often their heads are shaved and they have, they have uh, side locks. They, they, this is how the princes were, were depicted. Their hairstyles were very, very interesting. And, and, and in the Valley of the Kings, some years ago, in 1995, Professor Kent Weeks, and here's a book that just came up from, out from Kent Weeks by Richard Wilkinson, uh, my Egyptology professor in Kent Weeks, the Oxford Handbook of the Valley of the Kings, he found a tomb in the Valley of the Kings that was absolutely incredible. The largest tomb ever found in history in the Valley of the Kings, right across from King Tut's tomb, which is the smallest tomb in the Valley of the Kings, at least the smallest king's tomb. Look at how many chambers this tomb has. This gray stuff here is conjecture. This is the entrance to the tomb. It just went on and on and on. It was empty, robbed in antiquity. But we know today that KV5, or the Valley of the Kings Tomb 5, which is what this tomb is, is the largest tomb ever found in the Valley of the Kings, and it is the tomb of Ramses II's sons. 
I mentioned a little bit earlier, Ramses II was not the pharaoh of the Exodus, but Ramses II had probably over 50 sons and probably over 100 children. By the way, he had more than one wife, okay? So, why was that so important for Egypt? Because as God, the production of heirs was extremely important. The virility of the king was seen important. By the way, that was exactly why the Apis bull was worshipped, for his sexuality and virility. We didn't get into the sexuality of all of this. I don't want to get into that. But when you have spiritualism, you have sexuality. When you have nature worship, you have sexuality. And, and it is steeped throughout the Egyptian culture. So this was a huge thing. Ma'at, truth, justice, and order. The Egyptian king was the one who was to maintain order throughout the land. And this was the final blow, the blow of the firstborn son. This was the, this was the heir to Egypt. This was the final blow because the king could no longer maintain truth and order in his realm because the firstborn son died. All right, we need to end. But uh, let me just read a quote here. Ma'at is great, its value enduring. It has not been disturbed since the days of him who created it. This is the statement about Ma'at, truth, justice, order. This is by a vizier, Ptahotep. Joseph had been a vizier of Egypt probably at some time. The importance of Ma'at for Egyptian kingship should not be underestimated. The idea of Ma'at played an essential role in the king's identification with the god Horus. In the pyramid text, Snofru is called Lord of Ma'at and Yusurkaf is named Performer of Ma'at. This is this uh, area here. So I just want to say this. I just want to say this. That the plagues of Egypt and the deliverance of Israel was the most powerful demonstration of God since creation. And it became a central focal point of Israel's identity throughout its history. And it is a, sacred, is, is a focal point of us as well. Why? Because we serve a God who redeems. We serve a God who saves, who brings us out of the slavery of sin and death and offers us life. This is what the Egyptians could not really offer life. Their ideology was an ideology of life after death, but the reality was there was no life after death. And God, in demonstrating this through the plagues and through the experience of the Egyptians, was able to demonstrate that. And the final blow, of course, was the crossing at the Red Sea, when the entire Egyptian army was consumed. And who led that army? We know from other records in Egypt, we don't have it concerning this, that the Pharaoh always led his army into battle. And Ellen White says specifically in Patriarchs and Prophets that he headed his army. Okay, And Psalms also seems to indicate in one of the Psalms that the Pharaoh died in the Red Sea. So we have this. This was the final blow, the final blow to the whole thing. If you don't have a king who you can recover and mummify, you don't have eternal life. And this was the final blow to Egypt's ideology. Did Egypt continue after this blow? Yes. Did its ideology continue? Yes, for hundreds of years into the future, it continued. But Satan's desire to kill Moses at the beginning by destroying all male children, by having them thrown in the Nile, Satan's desire to oppress God's people by making them slaves in Egypt, Satan's desire to overcome them with the sophistries and religions of the ancient Egyptian nation, Satan's desire to do that was overcome by a more powerful God who was able to deliver his people. And we have the opportunity to serve that God today. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of mercy, mingled with justice. If everything in this world that is evil continues without justice, how can you be a loving God? But you are a God who mingles mercy with justice in incredible ways. And sometimes as humans, we, we don't understand all of that, and, and we wrestle with that. But there will come a time in this earth's history, in the time in which we live, when you will also say, enough is enough. There's enough dying and death. There's enough famine. There are enough wars. There is a, enough of, of, of oppression and injustice in this world, and enough is enough, and you will return in the clouds of heaven glorious, and every knee will bow and acknowledge that you are God and you alone. And Lord, we ask today 
that we might be ready for that day. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.